Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 3. This chapter is mainly concerned with the resumption of legitimate worship. In chapter 1, we had the proclamation enabling the return. Then in chapter 2, we had the listing of all the people participating in the return. And now here in chapter 3, in the seventh month of what is likely the year 537 BC, the people gather in Jerusalem to rebuild the altar and to resume the proper worship and service of the Lord. We begin reading about that now in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The main character in this part of the story is Jeshua, the son of Josadak, who is the high priest in the land. This is the only time in the story that Jeshua is named before Zerubbabel. Usually it is Zerubbabel and Jeshua, but here Jeshua is named first because this part of the story has to do with worship. It has to do with the altar and the temple. And so obviously this is the time for the high priest in this story to shine. Now, verse 1 says that all of this happened in the seventh month, which, of course, was the high holy month in Old Testament biblical worship. There were a cluster of important festivals in the seventh month, including the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths that is being celebrated here, as we will see in verse 4. The seventh month of the Jewish calendar corresponds to our September or October so they come together and they immediately undertake to rebuild the altar of the Lord. Now, in all likelihood, there was already an altar in place at this very spot. The temple was a ruin, but it was still considered a holy place by the people that were there. The Bible itself seems to give evidence that worship and sacrifice continued at this location even after the temple had been destroyed. So, for example, in Jeremiah 41, verses 4 to 5, it says, On the day after the murder of Gedaliah, before anyone knew of it, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria, with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. Closed quote. All right, but... By chapter 41 in the book of Jeremiah, the temple has been completely destroyed. In Jeremiah chapter 39, verses 1 to 2, it says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. So, Jeremiah has already narrated the defeat and capture of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. 
In 2 Chronicles 36, 19, we get some specific information about what happened to the temple as part of that larger catastrophe. There we read, And they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. Closed quote. So the temple was no more. It, it, it had been burned down. So where were the 80 men of Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria in Jeremiah 41 intending to worship? Where were they going? And the answer is that they were going to the temple compound. The people probably set up a makeshift altar of stone on top of the temple foundation, which of course would not have been disrupted by the destruction of the larger edifice. So the temple was a ruin, but it was still in some sense a holy place. So H.G.M. Williamson, for example, says here, it is by no means improbable that sacrifices continued to be offered here throughout the exile. And that actually sets up a fair bit of the tension that we encounter in the story. There is a conflict between the exiles who are returning from Babylon after 70 years away and the Jews half-Jews and Samaritans that had stayed behind. The people who had stayed behind, the poor of the land, as they are called in 2 Kings 24, 14, had continued to worship Yahweh in some form or another. They may have been polytheistic. They may have worshipped Yahweh here and, and Baal or some other god somewhere else, but the temple had been in use. And, and so who are these newcomers coming in now, essentially delegitimizing everything we've been doing for the last 70 years? That's what the people of the land were beginning to ask. And, and we have, of course, the Samaritans in the picture as well. And that was never going to end well. You will recall that in 2 Kings 17, we're told that when the Assyrians conquered northern Israel, they took away many or even most of the people and sent them to the far reaches of their empire. And then they brought in a bunch of people from other places that they'd conquered and relocated them here in the land of Israel. So 2 Kings 17 verse 24 and following says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore, he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Banath, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord, 
and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away, closed quote. So between the Samaritans and the poor lower class Jews that were left behind to work the land, you've got a bunch of Yahweh worshipers, to some extent anyway, living in the land and having some kind of a connection to the makeshift religious apparatus associated with the temple compound in Jerusalem. Now, are we to think of these people as real Jews? Are, are they likely to be reformed and, and reintegrated into this returning community? As we read through the narrative in Ezra, that does not appear to be any part of the intended program. Williamson says here, the possibility of true Jews being among them is simply not envisaged in these books, closed quote. These people are hopelessly degraded. They're part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that sets up the main tension that we will encounter in the several chapters that follow. We pick up the story in verse 3. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now that's important for us to see. They rebuilt the altar in fear as much as in faith. Derek Kidner says here, These settlers were moved as much by fear as by faith. Fear because of the peoples of the lands. This could be taken to mean that they dared not attempt anything so ambitious as a temple. But in view of verse 7, which sees them putting that work in hand, it is more likely to imply that the threatening situation had brought home to them their need of help, and therefore of that access to God, which was promised at the altar, closed quote. Arriving in Jerusalem, getting reestablished in the land, these folks had come to understand that they were outsiders. There were a bunch of people nominally associated with Yahweh who were not on board with this entire reformation and renewal project, and those folks were in the majority. So, these returning exiles were humble, they were scared, and they knew they needed prayer. So they set to work establishing an altar where they could seek the blessing and the favor of the Lord. There is wisdom and realism in that, and we want to be careful to take note of that. Verse 4, And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. I've mentioned a few times now that these returnees understood themselves as being part of a sort of second exodus. And so obviously there was symbolic value in rebooting the religious life of Israel by celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths as it is here called. Mark Throndweit says here, It is appropriate that the first feast to be celebrated by the community should be the Feast of Booths, which, according to Leviticus 23, 42-43, served to commemorate God's gracious deliverance of their forebears from Egypt. Close quote. The return from exile 
was understood as a complete reboot of the covenant project. It was Exodus all over again. They were Israel 2.0. And so there's a sense in which they understood that history was repeating itself. And they did a number of things very intentionally to reflect and underscore that reality. Verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now that line at the end of verse 6 has generated a fair bit of conversation amongst Bible commentators, historians, and linguists. Because how you understand that phrase, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid, is going to influence how you understand a number of other things, including how this story relates to the story told in Haggai chapter 2. The key word in this discussion is the Hebrew word yusad, which can be translated as laid or founded. The Tyndale Old Testament commentary does a good job of summarizing this issue. It says, To lay the foundation is one meaning, but not the full range of this single Hebrew word, which can cover the whole process of making a structure fit for use, a job which here would include the work of carpenters as well as masons, and which in 2 Chronicles 24, 12 and following meant the repair of a building which was by no means in ruins. In verse 10, it obviously describes the first stage of all, but in Haggai 2, 18, it marks the resumption of this work after many years neglect, closed quote. All right, so that's going to be helpful for us to remember because when we get to Haggai chapter 2, we will notice many similarities in that story, which is set about 20 years after this story. You'll notice the same idea of the old people being less enthusiastic than the younger people. But in all likelihood, these were two entirely separate events. Here in Ezra chapter 3, we see the work begun. We see a small altar rebuilt on the foundation of a ruined temple. We see a footprint being cleared and rededicated. And we see materials being ordered and assembled. But as we're going to read in the subsequent chapters, because of the conflict with these neighboring peoples, the work is going to stall for a significant stretch of time, after which it will be resumed and completed under the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah. So at that time, there'll be a second rededication ceremony with similar reactions from those who are there to witness it in person. Now, just before we leave this section, notice again the intentional echoes of the Exodus story. Just like in the founding generation, here in the renewal generation, money is being sent to Tyre and Sidon for materials. We're going to have cedars from Lebanon, etc., just like back in the days of Solomon. So there is a real emphasis on the parallels between the exilic generation and the generation of the exodus, the conquest, and the monarchy. Now, notice, too, that all of this is made possible because of the edict of Cyrus. Cyrus had authorized this, and Cyrus had indicated that materials were to be made available. So this temple is being rebuilt partially through gifts made by individuals and partially 
through government grants. One of the most interesting themes to tease out in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is the way that God uses the government, pagan government, mind you, to both punish and restore the covenant community. So he uses Assyria and Babylon as the wooden spoon on Israel's backside, as it were. But then he uses Persia to restore them and replant them. That is absolutely fascinating. And it provides a great deal of food for thought for the church today, trying to find its way in newly pagan lands and countries in the wider Western world. Let's jump back into the story at verse 8. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from twenty years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. All right, so we have an altar, we have a rededicated temple space, and so, of course, we need a priesthood, and we need some Levites. Notice that there is mention here of the second month which of course is another one of those echoes back to another time and an earlier generation. King Solomon also started building the temple in the second month of the year, according to 1 Kings 6.1 and 2 Chronicles 3, verse 2. So all kinds of tiebacks to the original people in the land are being made here. So in the second month of the second year back in the land, they made a beginning. We don't know how much work was done, but they made a beginning. And it may be here at this point in the story that Sheshbazar, the official or titular head of the Jewish exiles, makes his appearance. We don't know for sure, but as I said, this is one of the working theories. So F. Charles Fensham, for example, says here, it is possible that Sheshbazar, as an old man, played a minor role in the building of the foundation in 537 B.C., but that the younger Zerubbabel from the Davidic lineage played the important role, closed quote. And again, as a Canadian, I have no problem whatsoever conceiving of this. If Canada were going to rebuild their parliament buildings for some reason, when it was time to lay the new foundation stone, you can bet your bottom dollar that Queen Elizabeth would fly over from Buckingham Palace and stand over that stone with a gold shovel with a red bow on it and a picture would be taken of her laying the foundation stone. And the papers the next day would all show that picture and the headline would be Queen Elizabeth lays the foundation for Canada's new parliament. But we would all know very well that she didn't dig the hole or supervise the digging of the hole or do anything really other than hold that little gold shovel But that's how it's done. And that, in all likelihood, was how it was done here. Sheshbazar probably came over in a special caravan and participated in this ceremony and then went back to Persia. Zerubbabel and Jeshua remained the men in charge on the ground. Anyway, back to the narrative of this remarkable day. Verse 10 says, 
And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What we're supposed to see here is a mixture of continuity and discontinuity. On the one hand, they did everything right. They did everything this time, just like it had been done last time. Even the list of instruments appears to be making that point. Listen to 2 Chronicles 5.13, which is depicting the ceremony on the day that Solomon commissioned the original temple. It says that there were trumpeters and singers and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord. And it says, they sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we've got the same instruments. We've got the same song. But this time, we have a very different outcome. Listen to how the story ends in 2 Chronicles 5. The text there says, When the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God, closed quote. Did you hear that? On, on that day, back in Solomon's day, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The glory of the Lord visibly and tangibly descended upon the house. It was a charismatic service. And so no doubt in Ezra 3, when they did everything right, they expected the same result. But on this occasion, it was not to be. This, this was a wonderful, important, significant day in the history of the people of Israel, but it was not a return to the glory days of Solomon. It was a day of small beginnings, and the people were seeing that. Some were focusing on different aspects of that, and their various reactions gave evidence of that. What seems to be hinted at here is the fact that while it was necessary for the temple to be renewed and refounded, the temple itself was not going to be the permanent focus for the worship of the covenant community. They were to begin longing for something more. The Jewish people in the second temple period never lost this sense of ambiguity towards the temple. They, they were happy to have it. But they were also aware that it wasn't the glorious temple of yesteryear. And so there was a growing sentiment in Second Temple Judaism that God had something else in store for them. And of course, in the New Testament, we see Jesus stepping right into that sentiment in John chapter 2 and saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body, closed quote. The work that was begun here in Ezra 3 would shortly be abandoned for two decades. Then, under the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah, it would be resumed and completed in 516 BC. And then centuries later, under Herod the Great, it would be extensively renovated and expanded. But all of that was provisional. All of that was preparatory. And all of that was ultimately pointing forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that is a story for another day. Here, we see the Lord starting a whole new work. We see a day of small beginnings. We see him rebooting and renewing the Old Testament church. Not so that they can go backwards towards some sort of golden era, but so that they can begin to move forward into the better and brighter future that lies ahead. Thanks be to God. And thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you would like to support this program, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on iTunes as it will help other people find and access these materials. If you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find our entire library of content over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, just go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. You can also contribute through the Into the Word app. We hope to connect with you again really soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.